0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is
1: Believe.
0: Welcome back to Revolution Recap. I'm Sean Donahue, joined today by Brian O'Connell and Greg Johnstone. Looking back at the revolution's result, last night the revolution fell 4-2 to to Montreal Impact, Um, And the headline on MLS Soccer says it all, Piotti single-handedly destroys the revolution. Uh, It was not the best performance from the revolution backline by any stretch, as they were shredded several different times in this game, I think the, the the score could have actually been even more lopsided than it was. Some fight back from the Revolution at the end to, to pull two goals back after they're down four nothing. But you know, after the excitement of the Revolution's result over Sporting Kansas City the previous weekend, um, in, in general the Revolution's good record starting the season, uh, I think this was a bit of a reality check for the Revolution going on the road and, and playing one of the the worst teams in the league up until this point to to come away with a four two loss. Uh, Brian, what, what were your takeaways from, from this one and the kind of disastrous result for the Revolution?
2: Well, I think my biggest takeaway take is the fact that, um, you know, I think it's a little too early to hit the panic button. Um, this, I think we talked about towards the end of last week's show, is that this game really had all the makings of a trap game. It seemed like that, you know, the Revs were in good form, the Impact were not in good form, and it was a team, and the Impact were a team that the uh, Revolution had had success against in the past um so it had all the makings of hey check this one off as a as at least a point at least a result for the revs on the road um but as we saw that was definitely not the case you know it seemed like the impact kind of like beat the revs at their own game with a little bit of a high press and uh, it seemed like the revs got a little cavalier with the way with their defending um but i do think going back to my original point that i think it's a little too early to hit the panic button um, obviously, you know, anytime you see the revs get torched for four goals, it, you kind of, you know, you're wondering, Hey, what the heck is happening? But, um, you know, on the whole, they've been fairly consistent. Um, and I think it's a little too early to kind of like, you know, basically make a ton of changes to the back line, uh, especially the central pairing. Granted, I didn't think that Claude D'Elna had the greatest game in the world, but I don't think that, um, you just start pulling guys out of the lineup just because of one bad performance. And I think uh, I think that's something to bear in mind against, you know, bear in mind going forward because you know I do think that they they are starting to come together a little bit in the back line. Is it perfect? It's not perfect, but I you know I I think it's a little early to kind of hit the panic button and say oh you know oh my goodness they gotta they gotta revamp the entire back line and they gotta do everything uh, under the sun to to reconfigure everything because you know everything's broken. Not everything's broken. I think they're. uh, I think they're still in good shape. I think you know every team has a bad has a bad game, and I think that was uh, just simply a bad game for the revs. And granted, I do think that you know changes might be needed at some point in time. But I think that um, I think that as, I, I would, if I were Brad Friedel, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, make a reactionary change just because of the scoreline, just because of that game.
1: Yeah, and I'd I'd agree with that point. Um, I think that as you said, it was a bit of a trap game. I think a lot of people are confident with, uh, the victory over sporting Kansas city that there was talk of, uh, you know, are the revolution, do they belong in, in the, not only the playoff picture, but, uh, you know, they've been second to third or fourth in the standings lately. Um, so I think this is a bit of a reality check for the revolution. Um, I think playing a team that they beat for nothing just a few weeks ago, uh, maybe they were a little overconfident coming into this one, uh, Certainly facing Montreal with Piatti and eleven men on the field on the road is a, a different uh, feel than facing them at home. So, uh, if anything, I kind of see this as a heat check for the Revolution, and I'm not doing wide sweeping changes if I'm Brad Friedel. But I certainly think this is something that will keep them honest.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think the you know the center back pairing up until now, and, and particularly against Sporting Kansas City, has been you know decent enough, um, but. This this did have all the makings of a trap game. We talked about that last week. I think it was Brian that brought that up. Um, you know, typical Revolution. Uh, over the years, they go into a game like this when they've you know hit a good run of form and they you know collapse against a team like Montreal. But certainly, what what a difference it makes, uh, as Greg said, to see Piatti on the field for Montreal. Of course, he missed that four nothing loss, and, and for them to play with eleven men looks like a completely different different team. Um, but there's a reason that Piatti, uh, you know, is. Gets all the praise that he does and deserves it, and you know, to to go with a goal and three assists, three primary assists is, is nothing short of phenomenal. And as, as Brian pointed out before we started, finished the match with a with a perfect ten rating on who scored, which you certainly don't see very often. Um, but he just sliced and diced his way through the Revolution defense and uh, you know tore them up pretty pretty badly. Um, but with that, Greg, what what was your takeaway from this one?
1: Uh, I, I think yesterday was a bit interesting because it was the first time we really saw Christian Pena neutralized and not really uh a big changing figure in the game um it seemed like the impact really had him on lockdown and I'm not totally sure how it happened because uh, Pinea had some great moments uh, early in the game against duval he he ran right around him early in the game uh he he had a nutmeg nutmeg on duval and drew a yellow card when duval uh, kind of kicked him from behind and and uh, fouled him out of anger so uh, it, it looked like it was shaping up to be a great game for Pena, but he ended up uh, with only 39 touches, lowest among starters outside of Matt Turner and Juan Agadello. And you'd think, too, with Agadello out that uh, Christian Pena would, you know, they'd, they'd run the offense, not necessarily through him, but he, he'd be a big factor in the game. But he was really taken out of that game altogether yesterday, uh, and I think the impact did a really, really good job closing him down. Uh, And after his hot start uh, in the beginning of the year where he was among the league leaders in assists, uh, he's only got one goal and one assist in the last five games, uh, both of those coming uh, against the Columbus crew uh, in that game, which he was terrific. So uh, I'm not, again, not totally concerned about him yet, uh, but I am surprised that the impact were able to shut him down so easily, uh, especially with, as I say, with Juan Agadello out, you'd think he would try to take over that game and really be a key part of that offense. And he was really silent on Saturday.
0: Do you think part of that was just him not getting the ball enough? Because I'm you know, looking at the, the stats now. He was the only guy that went 90 minutes that had less than 40 touches, which is you know, surprising. As you, you know, mentioned, the impact he's had these past few games. Is that all on him or is some of that on his teammates not finding him as much as they had in recent games?
1: You know, it, it was I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I did notice on who scored that he lost possession six times. The Revs lost the possession 33 times uh, yesterday. Six of those times were Christian Panea. so it wasn't his best game overall. But you would also think that the Revolution would find a way to get the ball to him. Um, they really didn't try to push the ball up the left flank at all. It seemed like it seemed like they were uh, going straight through Fagundes. Uh, and I mean, there were a few times they tried getting the ball to him. I remember Fagundes tried a long cross across the field. Panea was when he was wide open, and he kind of airmailed him, and, and it, it kind of stopped the push, but. Um, you know, for a team that relies so heavily on the counterattack, uh, you, you'd think Pania would have been very much involved. And in, I, I guess the Revs just didn't include him. I, I, I think it was a little of both. I, I can't really explain what happened.
0: Yeah, it was definitely disappointing from Panea. I, I would agree that it was not his best performance. Um, 39 touches, disappointing. Uh, zero key passes in this one. Uh, interesting to note that Fagundes actually recorded nine key passes uh, and this disappointing result from the revolution um, which I, I would guess I, without going back, I would guess it's got to be a, a season high for him because that's a you know very very large number. I think he was averaging um, something like like three per game which is also impressive but to, to do nine um, in a match is, is pretty uh, pretty good showing from from Fugnes as far as chance's created um, and of course he did have an assist on on Zahibo's one uh, of Zahibo's goals and should mention that Zahibo finished as, as the Revolutions man of the match with an 8.73 rating on who scored um and, and he had two goals. But you know, I, d- I do want to get to to my takeaway here, which was um not quite the same as what Brian said earlier. I, I think that the one area where you can hit the panic button um now is, is at fullback. I think we've seen enough um through what is it, nine games now and, and the Revolutions fullbacks have just not been at the level um that you'd want them to be. Uh, you know, you can start by looking at Andrew Farrell, who was directly involved in both of those, the first two goals for Montreal, you know, key errors from him uh, contributed to both of those goals. Um, and, and, you know, I thought he had overall had a, had a disappointing game. And, you know, you look back a couple of weeks to uh, that game against Columbus where he scored that own goal that we talked about that, you know, there was really no need for and was, you know, a poor job by him there. Um, and, and while he's had his moments this season, I think that overall he's he's been below par um, but even more of a concern to me is Gabriel Somi, and I've you know, been hammering him for several weeks now. When the Revolution haven't been performing well, but you know he finished this match with forty five point eight percent passing accuracy, which to me is just unacceptable and, and terrible, really, from a left back for any defender. You know, no one else in this Revolution team that that started was below you know even sixty three percent, and there he was at forty five point eight percent, which is just a, you know, an awful total. And and even his season average now is is at sixty six point eight percent, which um, is, is is pretty poor, and you know you actually if you, you can look at who scored and they have his Europa League stats for for before he joined the revolution, and and even there his you know in five matches he had sixty five point three percent passing accuracy, um, so it's you know it, it's a pretty poor stat to have for a guy who's you know in, in the defense to be turning the ball over that much and you know, more, when more than half of your passes in a game are going to the other team, um, you know that that's pretty pretty awful to see out of your uh, left back. The, the problem there is, is who do you replace him with? I think Chris Tierney as we talked about, um, certainly there was a reason they looked to replace him and, you know, Age was catching up to him and, and you know, one-on-one defending was becoming a problem uh, but to me, and we, we t- hit on this a bit a couple weeks ago as well um, Somi offensively is not contributing as much as Chris Tierney could. His crosses are not quite as great, and defensively, he's having all the same problems as as Chris Tierney was having last year, if not more so. Um, so, uh, you know, to me, this guy's started all nine games. Is it time to to start looking to change the fullbacks and, and particularly the left back?
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think the fullbacks are definitely two areas of concern, Sean. The only thing is, I mean, I guess going back to my point of not hitting the panic button. I say that with, I guess I should say that with a caveat in the fact that, um, you know, you don't hit the panic button because, you know, for better or worse, actually for worse, you really don't have a ton of depth behind Farrell and Somi. Um, obviously, you do have Christianity out on the left, um, but how much more are you going to get out of Christianity given the fact that he's undeniably slower than Gabriel Somi? And while you will get more in the attack, uh, presumably, you're really not going to. You may be actually worse defensively, especially in, in transition. Um, and, I, and in transition is where the rest have have always struggled. Whenever they whenever they lose the ball, you know the the other side, um, they're always they always a step a step behind. Whenever uh, whenever you have a quality player, whenever they're matched up against a quality player, as we saw when them them playing against uh, you know Ignacio Piatti last night, uh, yesterday afternoon, I should say, and um, you know. It, it even last year whenever even last year you know we saw jay heaps kind of like use his use uh tierney you know selectively uh you know there were times in which they were p- matched up against uh you know a really fast or really a really cunning kind of attacking player and you know we'd see kellen rowe play left back instead of christianity so um i say that you shouldn't hit the panic button yet but i say that because i don't know what kind of options you have behind farrell and somi um and If you're looking at right back, where you do have Andrew Farrell, and again, it seems like Andrew Farrell is kind of at front and center whenever the other side seems to make a, whenever the other side scores a goal, and it's the result of a mistake of a pure mistake on the revs part. Um, so, you know, I don't know who you plug in. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Brandon By taking over the right back spot, just given how, just given the flashes that he's shown, uh, both that right midfield and right back. Um, but I think it kind of underscores the fact that now that they have some extra money to play with. The one trade maybe use that money to go out and get some, uh at very least, some depth at, at fullback on both sides.
1: That's a, that's a great tease for later in the show, by the way, Brian. The <laughs> the, the money, <laughs> really, really great job. Uh But w- what's interesting about the fullback situation is that a lot of what I can say about Brandon By, uh, the Brandon By Andrew Farrell situation, I can also say about the. Somi tyranny situation where one one option is kind of the more conservative uh kind of stable defensive option that might not give you a lot on offense and then Somi and buy can also go up they get involved in the offense but you have no, no idea what you're getting de- their liability defensively so i feel like it's kind of like a circular issue where you know are you going with the more offensive option or are you going with the defensive option in the case of Andrew Farrell, I know a lot of people are um, not very pleased with his uh, performance yesterday. He had, a, he had those issues on both those goals. And there was also an issue, um, I think Piatti uh, had a ball at midfield and went right around him. And then I think Claude Yelna had to catch up uh, uh, to Piatti, who was running a fast break and had to break up the play. It was back when it was 0-0 in the first half. So Andrew Farrell really didn't have a good game, but he also had a, a really nice tackle in the box – uh, and one-on-one defending. So I think Andrew Farrell is a average to slightly below average defender who really isn't going to give you a lot on offense, and I don't mind him starting at right back. But Somi is a liability defensively, uh, I think, at this point. It, it's kind of clear that he's there for his offense, and he's just not contributing anything offensively. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is at left back, because Tierney didn't go in the game yesterday either. Uh, we've seen Kellen Rowe and Brandon By go in for him in late game situations. And Chris Tierney uh, has only really gone in in the Colorado Rapids game. That's the only time he's had significant minutes. So I'm not sure if Chris Tierney, if they have a lot of faith in him, I'm not sure if they don't think he can uh, get up and contribute into the offense as much as they would like. Um, I I think they do value Somi's speed and ability to cross the ball, which Tierney's speed has declined in recent years. But um, you gotta think that if Somi keeps struggling a little bit, I don't see the harm in playing uh, Tierney against maybe a weaker team or just giving Somi a day off, maybe in a midweek match, because um, Somi right now has not shown us a whole lot. <clears throat> uh, has not shown us a whole lot defensively, and uh, I'm not sure how much long of a leash he has.
2: Let me ask you guys this. Would either think guys hate the idea of Kellen Rowe playing right back or left back next week?
1: The, well, let me, I, I'm going to just throw out that it's against Toronto, and I don't think you want to mess with your back line and go with a pure offensive option in Toronto. Um, Kellen Rowe is pretty valuable, but I, I think they want to probably maintain um, kind of their lineup for one more week just because I, I think if you go, I'd rather have Brandon by over Kellen Rowe uh, in the back line. Um, I, I just think if you're you're sacrificing too much defensively, even even with Somi as a, as a defensive liability, I think putting Kellen Rowe might be, even more of a defensive liability against a team that can really punish you.
0: I just want to point out one thing first, and because Greg made a point that I agree with, that you, your thought is that generally that Somi would contribute more offensively than Farrell. But if you look at the stats this year, Farrell's actually averaging just under one key pass per game at point nine, and Somi's at point six. So he's not even really contributing much offensively, as as Greg pointed out. You know, even less so than Farrell, you know, statistically. So um, you know, I don't really know. What he's doing out in the field to, to justify his play, and you know, after nine games, you certainly have to start thinking about that. Um, but to, to Brian's question, which was also a question I think one of our listeners had, um, and we can, we can get to that later. But with, as far as Kellen Rowe, um, you know, I, I, if, if Brad Field does not see him in the starting lineup, um, and I think somebody with with Kellen Rowe's talent should be, you know, should have a place in this Revolution lineup. If he's not going to be starting a midfield, which is where you know where he's best suited. Um, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing him play left-back in this next game. I actually disagree. I think he's a better option defensively at left-back than, than Somi. We saw him play there um, you know, several games last year, and while it's certainly not his best position, I thought he did you know, admirably there. I think one-on-one he actually can do a better job than, than Somi. Um, I think he can, can contribute more to the offense from the left-back role. Um, and and again, while I'd prefer to see Kellen Rowe in the midfield, and I think he's better suited for the midfield, uh, and has a lot to offer there, um, with what we've seen at left back, I would not at all be opposed to see Kellen Rowe against Toronto, and I do think they'd be better off defensively uh, with him there than they would be with Somya, based on what we've seen in these first nine games.
2: Yeah, I was thinking, um, you know, initially I was like, well, I don't know, I don't know if you really want to make that many changes to the back line. That was kind of, I was, I kind of had the same thinking after yes, after yesterday's game, Greg. But then I was also thinking the fact that. Although like Toronto's obviously you know a, a, a superior team, Toronto has I feel like the revs have have had Toronto's number here at home um, in recent years. So I don't know if it's the worst idea to maybe plug in to if you do make a change. Maybe you do make the change at left back. Um, I think left back is definitely the most glaring need, um, the most glaring area uh, of weakness for the revs. So I know that Friedel in the past has said has kind of like scoffed at the idea of Callen Rowe playing in playing in the back. I don't know. I think um I think I think nine games is enough to see that Soy really hasn't really hasn't made the transition to MLS. and I think uh, you know if you're gonna make if if you're gonna make changes, I think that might be a change you want to make in order to not only address the defensive concerns but also to get more offense. and I guess going to what uh to Greg's earlier point about how Pena really didn't get much serve I mean how pania had a quiet game, I think. Um, like like Sean was saying, he didn't really get much service and when when you're not really getting much service from your players, I think one of the, one of the guys who definitely didn't get a much service was was Somi and you know if you're not getting service from your left back, you know the, the entire offense is not going to do as well. So I think, um, I think making the replacement at left back, if you do happen to go in the direction with putting in Calum Rowe, I think would I think the entire offense would stand to benefit because there's no doubt in my mind that, Calen Rowe is a better crosser, and Calen Rowe is just better offensively um, than either of the two fullbacks. So I think if you're going to make a move, I think you do make the move and maybe possibly consider putting in Calen Rowe at, at left back against Toronto.
1: I will say, though, there, if there is one spot that does need to be improved, it is left back. But I think we also need to note that uh, I'm not, I am not—I haven't heard anything on Juan Agadello, if he'll be in, uh, available next week. But you have to imagine if Juan Agadello is out, that Kellen Rowe is taking that spot uh, in the midfield, don't you think? I, I guess my, my other question is, too, is Christian Namath is not getting significant minutes next week, I would assume, Correct. I mean that's the other option and I think we've we've <laughs> well, milked that cow dry. That's...
2: I think uh, yeah. I think I don't know. I, it's a it's a great question Greg, because I there's a part of me that feels like that we might see Scott Caldwell at, um taking over a Hill if, if he misses next week's game um just because they did have a little bit a little bit of success with uh Callen Rowe I mean not Calen Rowe um with Scott Caldwell in that role, um, kind of out on the right. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's so much of a given that we do see Kellen Rowe because it almost feels like, I, I want to say after the, um, after the home opener, it was, uh, it was, it was Scott Caldwell on the right up until the point where, um, I think Agudelo took over. I think Agudelo was returned to the line of versus and don't quote me on this FC Dallas, but I think it was, uh, I think we might see I might I think we might see Scott Caldwell out out on the right, um, this week if Agado is out. And who knows, maybe that maybe because of that, maybe it does maybe Callum Rowe isn't a prime opportunity to maybe fill in a spot maybe somewhere along the back line. That's just my thought. I don't know.
0: No, that's a good point. I think Casado's flexibility and we've seen him play out wide too, gives, you know, some options to uh Brad Friel going into this one. And I, I I wouldn't be surprised to see Scott Caldwell out there either, you know, playing uh, and centrally with Casado out wide or him playing you know, a different role you know, out wide potentially. Um, but, you know, you look at, again, you look at Toronto FC and you talk about what a good team they are, um, which we can talk more about later. But uh, it, it would make sense to me if you're going to to make a more defensive substitution of, of bringing in you know, Scott Caldwell for Juan Aguadelo if he can't play. This would be a game where that would make some sense because the Revolution are going to be on the back foot, I would think, for a lot of this game, uh, just based on how much talent Toronto has. Um, so that would not surprise me. It, it, it would make I, I would to get back to Greg's point about Christian Namath. I certainly don't think he did anything um, this past weekend to justify more playing time. Um, I haven't given up on him yet because I do think he's a very talented player. He does it for the national team. He did it for Sporting Kansas City in the past um, for the Hungarian national team, I should I should say. But he's been you know a, just a fantastic player over his career. He hasn't shown it for the Revolution. Uh, I'm not sure if he doesn't fit Brad Friedel's system or what. Um, certainly, we heard the the rumors that. Uh, the Revs were looking to trade him in the offseason, so it would certainly lead to you to imply that Bradfield doesn't think he fits the system. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see him, but I also would not be the least bit surprised to see Scott Caldwell be the guy that's put into the midfield rather than Kellen Rowe.
1: I actually, you, Scott Caldwell is an interesting uh, choice that I didn't even think of until Brian brought it up, but um, I, I agree with you, Sean. I, I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to uh, put Scott Caldwell in the midfield and put Caicedo over on the right side. Uh, I think he's played pretty well on that right side. Uh, so I, I think that's actually not a terrible, terrible idea. And we also don't know the extent of Rose injury, if they're kind of bringing him back with limited minutes. But um, in terms of Christian Nemeth, I actually am probably the only person that liked that idea, watching the game, like, okay, I can see why why uh, Nemeth is coming on in this spot. Um, I, think, I thought giving him uh, an extended amount of minutes might get him going, uh, kind of show what he can do off the bench. Um, and... I also kind of thought that, you know, by putting in a, someone that can play that right wing attacking position, it's better than putting in Scott Caldwell or Kellen Rowe and moving people around or shifting people around uh, and maybe exposing Rowe uh, too early coming off of injury. But um, I, I noticed after the game, uh, Nemeth had 20 touches overall in the game and Brandon by and Kellen Rowe who came in 40 minutes later had 18 and 19 respectively. So he was a complete non-factor yesterday and, um, I, totally non-existent and uh, I, I don't know. I, whenever he's come on, it, you, you kind of expect to see something and he really is just underperformed in any time we've seen him. I, I'm curious to how long it'll take until he's potentially dropped. I mean, I don't think dropped from the 18 because the potential's there, but he really has not done anything uh, so
0: far. Could anyone see Brandon by actually filling in on that right side if, if Brad wants to, you know, put in some more pace and potentially some more defensive ability and tracking back against a, a tough Toronto team. Is, could anyone see that as a possibility? I,
2: I could see that as a possibility. I could also see that I could see, I don't know if I see it as a starting possibility, but I could certainly see it as, as a pot as a potential like first sub in the second half, or maybe even at the half, because I, as we've seen before, we've seen uh, if we don't make that change right off right at halftime. And I think, it wasn't the wow, I really need to think about the schedule a little bit, but it was the game before the game before FC Dallas, um, where I think it was I think it was the game in which uh, Friedel switched off caldwell for Agadello at the half and got a little more got a little more from the offense. Um, so I could very much see something to that if, if 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 it's a situation where Caldwell starts and Friedel doesn't really see much going and he's Friedel's really not getting much from the offense, I could very much see uh, situation in which Brandon Bay gets at least 45 minutes if you know either either at halftime or maybe even gets in, or maybe even is the first sub you know in the second half you know maybe coming on in like the 55th or 60th minute but I, I I don't hate the idea I actually like the idea
1: yeah and I agree I I was going to mention Brandon by I thought did a really good job yesterday um he he you know the game was kind of out of hand, so he wasn't really playing any defense. He was kind of just playing that right-wing spot, but uh, I really thought he did a good job going down and, and getting some crosses in and taking defenders on one-on-one. One. I was impressed with what he did in limited minutes. So, um I, I do, and I agree with Brian, too. I don't mean to repeat everything he says, but uh I think with his speed, he's a really good option to come off the bench with 20-25 minutes and kind of beat down on the defense when their legs are a little bit tired. So, uh no, I, I could certainly see him taking over that right-wing role. I, I don't think he's Probably at the uh, the point where you want to start him uh, and expose him against Toronto FC for, 20, for uh, 90 minutes.
0: And I, I had one more thought in the game, and uh, well, in changes, actually, potentially. And then I wanted to get into the Lee Wynn situation. But um, one other idea that I'd seen thrown out on Twitter, and I think this was um, partially led by how poor the defense was here and wanting to shake everything up. As we know, Claude D'Alma has played some left back in his career, and we've seen him do it a couple times in the Revolution. I think he's pretty solid defensively there. Um, and we've also seen that he has a penchant for wanting to get forward. Um, is there? Do you think there's any chance that we see Claude D'Elna moved out to left back and, and De La Mea come back? And I, my guess is that both of you, based on your comments earlier, about not wanting to break up the, the center back pairing yet, uh, would probably be against that idea. But I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that potential.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think it's still too early. I mean, I, I think he you he's certainly an option you have over at left back. And I'm trying to think of the games that he played last year. I'm trying to think of what he really brought to the offense. I mean, I think we. I think it's it's a given that he's going to want to add to the attack. I mean, we've seen it plenty of times this year already, and, and it was to his own detriment uh, during uh, yesterday afternoon's game, where I think he I think he played a little too cavalier, and I think the uh, I think the impact made him pay for that. Um, but I do think that uh, for now, like you mentioned, um, I, I would rather see that that central partnership continue to grow because I think it's. I think it's working for the most part. I mean, obviously yesterday was kind of like a horror show, um, with the way that Piatti kind of basically outplayed the entire Revolution backline. But, um, but I think that's you're not going to see that every week. I think I think on the whole the 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 backline's been okay. And I think um, some I've been I've actually been pleasantly surprised by the way that the cent, central pair of uh, the central pairing between Annie Baba and um, Diano has worked. So I think I wouldn't make changes, but I you know if if it comes down to that, if you really don't have many other options at left back, um I could see I could see maybe tinkering with it during a during a midweek game or maybe during an open cup game um, and seeing what you get from that getting seeing what you get from that situation where you put Dalma out on the left and maybe partner Annie Bala and Dale Maya at central back and at center back and who knows maybe maybe, maybe it is a an idea that uh, that that's worth uh, that's worth exploring. Um, you know, if they continue to get not get what they need, what they're looking for from, uh, from Gabriel Somi.
1: Yeah. And I agree with Brian. I, I think I want to see, I think the the defensive uh, center back pairing they have right now is probably the best going forward. Um, not to say anything bad about De La May. I think we're all fans of him, but uh, I've been really impressed with Anibaba and Yella so far. Um, and I, I think the issues yesterday The more we see him, I think it's just the system of, you know, going up on the high press. And sometimes when you have a really talented player like Piatti, uh, they're going to counter punch and they're going to score goals. And I I think it's just kind of a bit of a high risk uh, offense that they run. Um, But we're talking about Dielna. uh, I I actually had a different thought about him. Uh, Not that he couldn't play left back or, or we could try him out there, but he almost kind of seems to me like he might be suited better for the defensive midfield because he goes up so much and uh, he, he really has a powerful leg. He can get off some really powerful shots. So they don't need anyone in the defensive midfield, but uh, he goes up so much and and the more I was watching him, the more he kind of reminds me of Zahibo a little bit where uh, he's kind of a wild card in the midfield who can fire on some shots and create some chances and uh, kick a really good deep ball. So, but the issue with him is that he just leaves the back line exposed when he, when he goes up. Uh, I know that second goal uh, was his man. Uh, I think Caseto didn't cut back in uh, or or was kind of ball watching before he realized that Dielna was out of position leaving. uh, Was it Edwards on the second goal or Jackson? Jackson was the second goal. Um, Leaving Jackson open on that, that uh, easy shot. So I think Dielna, it's a big risk reward where he, he can get involved in the offense and create a lot of chances, but, I don't see what they can change about it right in this moment in time.
0: Yeah, no, fair point. Uh, I actually had one more thought as I was <laughs> looking through the stats, um, and that's on Diego Fagundes, who picked up his third yellow card in as many games and his fourth uh, in six games, um, and is now, I, I think, must be getting close to uh, yellow card accumulation suspension. Um, is that a concern at all to see you know, the Revolutions number 10 getting that many yellow cards at this point of the season? Um, and you know, he could, he could be suspended soon. And it, you, we heard, um, you know, Brad Friedel talking about not wanting to change up his number 10 and, uh, and you know, any situation, but to, to see him racking up the yellow cars, do either of you have any concerns with, with that at this point of the season that he's leading the team in yellow cars from the, from the number 10 role and
2: said, had yellow cars in three straight games. I don't, I don't think it's that huge of a concern. Um, obviously it's not what we're not what we're accustomed to from Fagunas, and obviously, not what most, uh, not what you get from many number tens, but I think it kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, he's really not afraid. He's really not afraid to like back down and like defend and get stuck in. Um, so, I think, I think that's, I think if you ask Brad Friedel, I think he'd be okay with that. Um, obviously, you don't want him to put himself in a position where he's, you know, where he's going to, you know, get, get suspended due to yellow card accumulation. But I think, uh, honestly, I think, I think. Brad Friedel's okay with that. I think he's okay with his number ten kind of mixing it up a little bit because I think that's that's what he wants. I think that's what he wants from his attacking players. I think he, he in the high press he wants his attacking players to engage and he wants them to really get um, really not be afraid to you know to uh, to get physical with the with with the other side. So um, it's not what we've grown accustomed to from Goonies over the years, but I don't think that Friedel's... I mean, Friedel may may talk about it a little bit more with, with Diego as, uh, you know, if, if it happens again or if he picks up another yellow versus Toronto, but um, I, I personally don't think I... Given the way that Friedel's kind of set up the system, I don't think that's to Diego's detriment um, so long as, you know, he's mindful of it and so long as, uh, you know, he has discussions about it with Friedel.
0: Yeah, and just a quick point there is that he is actually now one yellow card uh, away from a suspension um, because it is your first five yellow cards gets you, gets you a suspension um, so if he gets any a yellow card in any of the next five games that'll lead to him missing a game um, and his career high for yellow cards in an entire season up until this point has been four so interesting but
1: know. you know what if he gets suspended we got zach Caravo ready to go ready to take over that 10 spot so <laughs> i'm not concerned at all and they got lee went oh never mind yeah it's too soon Ah, they got that's allocation true. money.
0: <laughs> I mean, may- maybe we finally will see Callan Rowe get his chance to to play the number ten, which, in uh, you know, a, I personally have wanted to see at some point <laughs> based on his tail set, and we have never had an opportunity to see that uh, anytime recently. So may- maybe that's what it will lead to, and um, you know, he could force Friedel's hand if he plays a really good game <laughs> at that point. But um, I-, I, I actually hadn't realized how close he was to a suspension, um, but now that he's at four, I, you know. According to the rules, next game, if he gets the yellow card within the next five games, he'll he'll get one. So um, that's an interesting side story to watch. Um, But you mentioned Lee Wynn, and we should certainly talk about the trade that happened this past week. Um, At the 11th hour, with the the trade window just about to wrap up, uh, the Revolution finalized a trade with LAFC where, uh, according to Jeff Carlisle from ESPN, they got $350,000 in general allocation money, $350,000 in targeted allocation money, Um, And then there's some incentives there where if LAFC re-signs Lee Wynn for more money before the expiration of his contract, then the Revolution will receive $150,000 in allocation money. Um, To me, that seems unlikely that, you know, Lee Wynn, who uh, I believe my understanding is there's two team options for the the next two seasons, um, and at the end of that, he's going to be, I think, 34. Um, So I'd be surprised to see LAFC you know opt to, to give him an extension that's at more than what he's making now, um, so i don 't see that happening, and then the other, the other possibility is if laFC were to trade Lee Wynn during this summer 's tr- transfer window, the revolution would get a draft pick um, and an additional one hundred thousand money one hundred thousand dollars in allocation money. That also seems highly unlikely so at the end of the day, it looks like the revolution are getting seven hundred thousand dollars in an allocation for allocation money for Lee Wynn. Um, and the article also says that there was more, more money, guaranteed money offered to the Revolution um, by Eastern Conference teams, but it, it, it seems like they wanted to get him out of the Conference so they wouldn't be playing against him two or three times a year. Um, Brian, do you think this was a, a, a good haul for the Revolution uh, to get for Lee Wynn at this point?
2: I mean, I, I mean, all things considered, I think it is. Um, however, I do—I don't know. I'm, I'm of the opinion that trading within your Conference, I think, is kind of a little overblown, from my opinion— and I know that uh, I actually had a discussion with uh, with uh, with Voodoo, who's somebody who listens to our show all the time, and he's a big fan of the show. And um, him and I were kind of like texting back and forth about it. And uh, and he pointed out to the fact that you know just look at the last time that Lee went faced a team that let him go, and that was the first game that the Revs played against uh, Vancouver back in 2012, and that was Lee's first game against Vancouver, and he had like two goals in that game, and one of them was like basically a spectacular goal. I remember it. Um, but I don't know. Like I, I feel like I feel like you get the best deal regardless of wherever wherever that money's coming from, whether it's coming from a from a Western Conference team or an Eastern Conference team. And I know the whole idea of like you know they're going to be more they're going to be extra motivated, and I get it. I totally you know get that get that storyline. But I think it's a little overdone in the sense that it's not like you know one v one. It's basically you know that that entire team has to be good enough in order for you know a leave in order for that player to really get get his revenge, so to speak, against the other team. Um, and I just, I don't know. I feel like the Revs. it's a good deal. I mean, obviously, they, they, they didn't want to trade him within the conference. And they, you know, obviously, the, the one team that probably offered them more was probably the Chicago Fire. Um, but, you know, all things considered, I think I think if you asked Lee, he probably would have rather gone to L.A. than Chicago. Um, again, just speculation on my part. So I think everyone wins in that kind of scenario. Um, but at the same time, I think that they probably, if, if I were Michael Burns, I probably would have said, all right, Chicago, you're offering me say, if, if the rumor was true that they were offering them $950,000, I would have taken that $950,000 and said, I don't care if we have to play them, you know, three, two or three times a year. I, you know, I take an extra 200 K and I improve my team so that my team is better when they play them. So that's just my, my personal thought, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it seems like everyone was happy with the way that it shook out. And uh, now the Revs, as we mentioned earlier, have an extra $700,000 to play
1: with um, come the summer transfer window. So I have some thoughts. First, and I think this is worth pointing out, although I don't think this was a factor, but it, 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 it's important to know in the real, weird MLS rules that general allocation money – has more value than targeted allocation money, and we've seen some teams trade general allocation money for targeted transfer, targeted GAM for TAM, and and there is a bit of an exchange rate. So we don't know the ratio. I know the LAFC deal was 50-50, but we don't know the ratio of the Chicago deal. I assume it's 50-50. Everyone assumes it's 50-50, and since it's reported that Chicago offered more, we can assume it's 50-50, but there is a bit of a difference there. And so maybe the ratio is a little bit different. It comes out to about the same. Um, but in terms of was this the better offer, I don't think $50,000 in allocation is a whole lot that swings either way. Um, we asked people on Twitter whether you would uh, trade Lee Wynn to LAFC for $700,000, to Chicago for $750,000, or no preference between the two offers. And 88% said they'd rather Lee Wynn go to LAFC for uh, seven hundred thousand. Now that's among fifty-eight votes, but I, I have this kind of the same mentality of you get Lee Win out of the conference, uh, you don't send him to a rival. You might be battling in a playoff spot not only this year but the next two years. Um, and I, I don't think fifty thousand dollars in allocation may really rocks the boat too much when you consider they're getting seven hundred fifty thousand upfront plus you're saving on Lee Win's salary of five hundred thousand over the next three years. So. On the whole, I- I'm not upset that they took the LAFC offer over the Chicago offer. The only other thing I was going to add on on this trade is that Sean, I, I think I texted you a few hours before uh, the trade went down, and I said, they have to deal him, right? Uh, I-, I can't imagine that his value would have maintained this level if they had to wait a few more months and kept him out of the eighteen. And you know, I, I don't think anyone's offering seven hundred thousand dollars worth of allocation money. In June or July for a guy that hasn't played since 2017. So I think the Revolution, I don't know if they were considering accepting the Chicago offer. Um, I would be really curious to see what would happen if LAFC did not get hit with the injury bug, if the Revolution would have, you know, bit the bullet and sent him to Chicago. It certainly sounds like that $750,000 worth of allocation money was on the table. Um, but I am. Uh, I, I think the revolution really uh, saved face here, uh, make, pulling the trigger and, and making this trade before the window shut, because if they didn't, they'd be in a really, really awkward situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a few thoughts here. First of all, I, I agree with, with Greg. If the difference is $750,000 in Chicago or uh, $700,000 LAFC, Um, I can see, you know, eating that $50,000 to get him out of your conference, sure. Um, If it was more than that, and we don't know that it wasn't, um, but, you know, just purely speculation. At that point, I would agree with Brian that, you know, certainly um, any significant amount difference should not, uh, I I think would not be, would would not lead you to trade somebody to to get him out of the conference to take a a loss at allocation money that you could be getting. Um, I do think it's overrated to to say, especially a guy at Lee Wynn's age, you know, 31, who, you know, Two or three seasons left in him. Um, the decline is going to start you know, soon for him uh, to, to to be that scared of your Eastern Conference foes to not trade him to another Eastern Conference team um, for any significant amount for any significant amount that that I would I, I wouldn't get. Um, and the other interesting quote that I wanted to point out was from uh, the MLS article about the trade, the anatomy of the deal, uh, which was interesting, which was um, from Mike Burns who said that during the holdout. Uh, This is a quote from Mike Burns. We were not open to entering into any sort of negotiation or trade talks in the midst of a player holdout. It's a position that, frankly, I and our organization take, and that was the main reason at the time, end quote. Um, So Mike Burns, interesting for him to come out and and state that during the holdout, they had no interest in trading Lee Wynn. Um, And then Burns also apparently told them that the club's attitude changed after the holdout ended, but they wanted to give Friedel time to assess how Lee Wynn fit in with the new players that the team signed before they began to seriously consider trading him. Um, it, interesting quotes, and what adds that, what adds to that to me is that you know from what we've heard, Lee Wen asked for a trade early last season. Uh, so this was you know potentially over a year now that they've known he wanted to be traded, uh, and they you know, freaked out over the holdout and wouldn't trade him then, and then you know, it took all this time to to make this trade um, to finally send him to LAFC right before the window closed. Um, it, just to me, it seems, you know, interesting timeline there of what happened. Um, and I also wonder what the communication was between Mike Burns and Lee Wynn, because we saw what happened with, with Justin Merriman Columbus, who, you know, asked to be traded you know, the organization, you know, talked to him about it. They, uh, said they were willing to do it but it wasn't necessarily going to happen instantly. So it didn't happen instantly. He showed up to training camp, he you know, worked hard, and then they made the trade happen when, when it was available and the right offer was there. Um, my guess is here that the organization, and based on these quotes, wasn't willing to listen to offers to Lee Win until apparently Brad Friedel decided he wasn't going to fit their system. Um, and it's just you know an interesting way to, to treat a player that wants to leave your team. Um, and, and, and the other note there, of, of course, is that... Uh, you know, the revolution had apparently had these $750,000 offers. And what we'd heard before was that uh, the rumor was that the revolution were looking for a million for him. And, um, you know, you talk about avoiding egg in your face for making this trade. They didn't get a million for him. Um, they didn't even get 750000 guaranteed for him. They got less than that. So if that's what they were holding out for, uh, the negotiation strategy of waiting to the last minute didn't seem to pay off in, in, in that sense.
1: I think it might have been um, an asking offer of a million dollars from an Eastern conference team. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to really pump up this Eastern conference, Western conference narrative anymore, but I I can't. uh, The other thing too, is I don't know if he's worth a million dollars, even without all of the holdout drama, him not making the 18, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think you would get an offer of $1 million from anyone. So I think that might be the, we don't want to trade him within the division. There's a bit of a premium. If, you know, the Chicago Fire, Montreal Impact are asking, um, whereas, you know, 700,000 from LAFC might be more in their ballpark. I, I don't know what the value is between Western Conference and Eastern Conference, but that clearly made a huge, huge impact. And it sounds like only Eastern Conference teams were acquiring prior to LAFC getting uh, getting that injury.
0: Now, now timing-wise, would 750,000 two months ago have been uh, a better bet for the Revolution where they could have then been- – Potentially gone out and used that money sooner to to bring somebody in to help up, to help out this team, or um, you know, are, are you guys okay with you know seeing that the revolution were doing decently well back then, uh, and perhaps didn't show the holes that they've shown recently? Um, you know, stay, standing on your laurels and being okay with where the team was and, and not needing to, to rush to make a move.
2: I yeah, I think Sean, I, I think they should have made the trade at the end of last year. To be very honest, I think they probably could have gotten more from they, they probably could have gotten more more value from a guy who. Coming off a 10 goal, 15 assist season, fresh off that season, saying, "Hey, he's available for a trade. Um, give us your best offer." I think I think they probably could have had more leverage doing it last year than waiting until the last minute this year. And you know that, like the fact that, yeah, they got seven hundred thousand dollars from him, but you know, obviously, they throughout the entire. For me, they lost they lost their leverage when they didn't trade him at the end of last year. Um, there was no way they were going to get top dollar. They were going to get dollar for dollar value. At least from their their perspective, by trading me at the last minute, obviously the LAFC was in a pot, was in uh, was was had all, almost had almost all the leverage in the sense that, you know, it's take it or leave it. They know that the Revs have to move a guy, um, and and that the uh, clock was winding down the, on the primary transfer window. I mean, I mean on the trade deadline, I should say, and um, and they knew that you know it was it they it was probably something along the lines of take it or leave it. Take it and you know take it and we'll take away a player that you basically have no no interest in playing in up in you know th- throughout the rest of the year um, or you know you you say no and you know you're stuck with that kind of player until at least the uh, the, the secondary window and it was funny because it was inter- it was interesting because I went to training on Wednesday and um, John Siegel asked Brad uh, asked Brad Fiedel. Uh, well what if that trade didn't happen I mean could you envision a scenario where you where he gets incorporated into the into the team and Friedel said in as much in as many words that you know he hadn't even thought about it so the fact that he hadn't even thought about it, if that's if, if he's if he's telling the truth that he hadn't even thought about the possibility of playing Lee when uh, had he not been moved um, really you you want to talk about a situation where the res would have had egg on their face it would have been that if they couldn't move when before the deadline so um to me, it's still the kind of trade that uh, that they really didn't have much leverage. You waited; they waited until the last minute, um, and uh, I mean, I do credit them for getting something of value. Um, I don't know if the, they their asking price was a million dollars across the board or not, um, but you know, the time to make the trade, in my opinion, was at the end of last year, um, where they probably could have gotten much, much greater value, and not only gotten much greater value, but could have used the money that they gotten from that trade to uh, to address the needs that we were talking about earlier in the in the in the podcast and you know needs at, at center i mean needs at fullback and probably needs at uh, at striker um given uh given agadal's injury
1: yeah and i agree with brian i think the time to have dealt him was at the end of last year um, the revs have been sitting on lee win's trade request for a full season uh, he was coming off of a really really strong year and you know going into the offseason lafc was an is an expansion team Uh, you know, I'm sure they would have loved to have gotten Lee win as a centerpiece of their team before filling out their roster. Uh, I'm sure a lot of teams would have, you know, going into, you know, looking for free agents and, and uh, going into the draft and, and, you know, that's when the majority of moves are being made. So I think if you put Lee win on the block, he's probably the uh, key player or one of the best assets that's available. And a lot of teams would have jumped at him. Whereas now in the spring, a lot of teams have finalized their team, their rosters and, Uh, their lineups and kind of want to see how things develop. So um, I think the time to strike would have been last year in terms of waiting on until the last minute and not uh, making that 750,000 trade from Chicago. And and I don't think they would have used that money in this transfer window. I think they want to see the roster that they have and they want to give them some time to play together. Uh, We're only nine games into the season. So, I mean, we're the, the positions we're talking about replacing fullbacks and striker, uh, you know, I think Bunbury has done a good job, and they want to give him a little bit more time. I think Somi's still new to the team, uh, and I think as I know we're talking about, you know, him him running out of leash, but, um, you know, I, I'm sure Brad Friedel has a lot of faith in him. He was a new signing, so, um, you know, I, I don't think they'd want to go out and bring in a new left back or a new striker in May. Uh, I, I think either way they're going to accept that trade and, uh, they're going to save that money over for the summer, which is probably why they waited until the last minute. They figured maybe an LAFC would jump in at the last second, or maybe a, a, another team that you know has an if someone from Dallas got hurt or Seattle or something like that, there there might be a team that would uh, come in at the last second. Whereas two months ago, it was really just Chicago and Montreal from everything that I understand. So um, yeah, o- overall the Revs saved face, I would say, uh, but. I, I don't think we should let them off the hook for letting this situation brew to the spot where it is now, when they could have taken care of this after the final list of last year.
0: Yeah, I'm with both of you that it would have made the most sense to trade him after the end of last season, but I won't bore you with, with going to the same explanation why. Um, with that, we do have some listener questions, one of which relates to the Lee Wynn transfer, some of which we kind of already touched on. But, Greg, do you want to jump into the listener questions?
1: Yep, uh, it actually is from Corey. It's uh, a good segue into where to go next. Uh, now, with wind gone and freeing up some money, where should the Revs focus their spending this summer?
2: Yeah, I would. Uh, I think. I think we all talked about it earlier, um, and I think uh, Sean highlighted it is is the fullback spot. I think there's definitely uh, a glaring need for um, for for reinforcements, if not the very least depth at those two spots. And um, I think if you're going to start anywhere, you start there. Um, I know we've talked about it in previous episodes. You could also look up at Stryker um, because there's a significant drop after Bunbury and Agudelo, given uh, Nemeth's struggles. So I would look at fullback and I would look at Stryker.
0: Yeah, I agree with Brian, so I won't you know, go into to bore you with the same, the same talk. But the only thing I'll add is that uh, at, at Stryker, I've am i been impressed with what Bunbury has done this season, but I'm still not sold that he's your guy for you know 32 games, 34 games uh, this year. Um, to, to hold that starting spot, and you know, maybe by the summer you'll know whether that consistency will be there. Um, but I'm still not con- convinced that Bunbury is the guy. So you know, as you get into the summer months, um, maybe you're looking for a starting striker to to really take this team to the next level. Um, and, and of course, the fullback spots both need some some serious help.
1: Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, other than the obvious uh, liabilities we've already touched upon, um, the one thing I, I do worry about, and it's a big fear of mine, but I mean, Matt Turner, I mean, he's played great so far. I still think he's an MLS all-star, but um, I wonder if maybe goalkeeper is a spot that they, you know, long-term might want to uh, find a a bigger name option or something like that. Um, Other than that, I mean, maybe they're saving up for a big splash, maybe in the summer or at the end of the season, but uh, I'm really not sure where they're going to go with this, uh, this allocation money. It'll be interesting to see. Um, We also have one more question here. Uh, we actually answered the first one already. about It was about Somi and whether or not Rowe starts at left back. Uh, but uh, Mike Kennedy asks, uh, with Friedel, even though he's not a big rotation guy, do you think there's any chance Rowe will start next week? And he mentions for Panea off the bench. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. I, I think, as I say, I think Rowe would be a better spot at right wing. But what do you guys think? Do you think Rowe makes the uh, starting lineup next week?
0: I don't think he makes the starting lineup next week. Um, with that said, I do think that that's an option down the road. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the possible suspension of Fagundes if he gets another yellow card. I think at that point we'd see him, you know, play the, the number 10, 10 role. Um, and, you know, a few weeks down the road, I i don't have the schedule in front of you, but I know they have a midweek Wednesday game, uh, I believe, against Atlanta um, in a few weeks. And at, at that point, you know, we haven't seen Friedel do much rotation, um, but he really hasn't had to because he's had, you know, a full week between every game. When that changes and they have some midweek Wednesday games, uh, at that point, uh, I certainly think we'll see more out of Rowe, and I think we could see him fill in for Panea. Um, and, you know, if Panea has another you know subpar game where he doesn't contribute much, uh, maybe we see that another week down the road. But I, I think has done so much for this team in the early going that he's earned another start, um, and, and we'll see him get, get the start again next week.
2: I agree with that. I don't think has played himself out of a starting spot just yet. I think if we do see Rowe in the lineup for next week, I think, honestly, I think we see it at one of the uh, fullback spots, so that's my uh, that's my mini hot take right there.
0: All right, and I think that was it for our listener questions. Um, and so with that, we talked a bit about about uh, lineup changes already, but I want to get your your thoughts on the upcoming game um, with the Revolution at home taking on Toronto, who. Uh, have struggled a bit this season but you know as we've discussed ad nauseum th- they were playing in the champions league they weren't playing their their best lineup um and of course you know w- once their best lineup is out there and they got a three nothing victory over philadelphia uh this past week and just to, to show what their best lineup can do um I-, I still think they're one of the best teams in the league i think we're all in agreement on that it'll be a difficult match so i'm curious from, from both of you whether you think there'll be any lineup changes um and, and if so uh, what those will be, and then what your score prediction is. Let's let's start with
2: Brian. I think uh, you know. I, honestly, I don't. I, I on paper, this looks like a tough matchup, and I'm not saying it won't be. But I do think, um, just kind of going back to my earlier point about how Toronto has not really gotten much success in Foxborough. Um, I will say that the only lineup change I do see that I can I can envision is Caldwell for Agudelo, Um if Agadello is not ready to go. Um, so I do see Caldwell taking that Agudel spot out on the right. Um, and as far as my score prediction, I'll say 2-1 revs. Um, I do think that this is the kind of game that, you know, I, I think it's the kind of game that the revs are going to be able to kind of like, you know, fo- kind of like regroup and return to, um, you know, what worked for them. Uh, I think that there were some hard lessons learned in the Montreal game. Um, I think they got a little too confident, a little too cavalier, especially defensively. Um, with uh, D'Elma really pushing up high and, um, you know, a lot of the mistakes that were were, were created as a result. Um, but I do think this is the kind of game that the Revolution do. Certainly will have their hands full, but I do think that they do get a 2-1 win uh, against Toronto, uh, against the Toronto team that, that has historically not performed at their peak when they come to Gillette Stadium.
1: Uh, I think that in terms of the lineup, I think... Everything will be – it'll be unchanged unless Agadol misses uh, next week for injury, in which case I think Roe will start over him. Um, I'm going to lean with a 2-1 Toronto victory. Uh, I think they're pretty motivated. Uh, you know, they're they're down at the bottom of the standings, and I think with Champions League over, I think they're going to be very focused to make up some ground in the MLS. And uh, I, I think that back line of the revolution just scare me. I think Toronto is going to be a team that could easily get the ball at Giovinco who could expose that back line. Uh, and and re- really counterpunch really heavily So uh, I- I'm going to give the nod at TFC this week
0: Yeah, The, the only things I'll note is that uh, Just to point out injury situation for Toronto Is that Drew Moore is out for three months So that's a you know, good defender for them that's been missing And Michael Bradley has actually been filling it at center back um, But did pretty well against Philadelphia And has done pretty well there overall um, so I think there is something to exploit there. And Josie Altidore also missed out this past weekend. Um, I don't know if there's any chance he'll be back this next week. It, it sounded like he'll be out for a couple of weeks. So they may be facing Toronto without Josie Altidore, who's you know, obviously one of their key guys. But again, that didn't stop them from absolutely destroying Philadelphia 3-0 and, and you know, out-shooting them 16-5, to out-possessing them, you know, beating them pretty much everywhere you could a- across the board. Um, with that said... Uh, I think this is a Toronto team that, with those two absences, you know, could be vulnerable to the Revolution. Um, but I still think there's just too much talent. I think Giovinco, um, if he gets to run at some of the Revolution's fullbacks, is going to have you know, a, a, a great day doing that. Um, and I, I have trouble seeing anything other than a, a Toronto victory. Uh, I'm going to go with a higher scoring game and say this one won 3 2. Uh, but, in favor of toronto and the the other only other note I wanted to to have today on the revolution before I see if either of you guys have any shout outs for the week um, was was that you know I mentioned duels last week. this was actually the first game of the season in which the revolution won the duels and they lost quite handily to montreal F, to montreal impact so so looking uh at, at the duels, I think there 's really been no correlation this season certainly between winning the duels and and, and winning the match. Um, I, I don't know if either of you guys have any shout-outs, though, before we uh, wrap out the show.
1: Yeah, I, 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 uh, and, and before I move on, I, I just want to say that looking at the stats from that game yesterday, it's really weird because it looks like a very even match between the two teams, but it was played out very differently. I think the Rose outshot him and outpossessed Montreal, but uh, very strange game. Uh, I have actually a couple... The uh, first one, uh, I just want to add one more note on Lee Wynn That when you guys brought me on to New England Soccer today, it was that 2014 season, his MVP season, uh, and I really enjoyed covering him that second half of the season. And I know that he had kind of a messy breakup with the Revolution, but uh, you know, I I personally hope he does very well in LAFC, and uh, I I wish him nothing but the best. I think he he's certainly a club legend, and you know, I, I think it's a lot of people have a lot of hard feelings toward him, but. Uh, I just want to give a shout out for Lee Wynn for everything he did for the Revolution. Uh, And then the only other thing I was going to add is that it's U.S. Open Cup week, and there's some great matches on the docket. Uh, I am actually excited to watch the Western Mass Pioneers and Elm City Express on Wednesday. Um, Elm City Express, for those of you that don't know, were the NPSL uh, national champions last year, and Western Mass is a very, very solid team in uh, the PDL, so it's probably going to be the best non-mls game in new england this year so uh just if you're uh, free wednesday night and you're looking for some soccer action uh, that's going to be a good game to watch
2: well i have i have wednesday night free and i'm actually going to go up to uh Ludlow to go cover that game uh so that like uh like you said greg it'll be a, it'll be a great it'll be a great match to just, just go see um the last time last time we all saw on city express they were winning the npsl championship Uh, That was that was a really probably one of the one of the most fun games I've ever I've ever uh, watched or covered either way So that was that was a lot of fun. Um, It'll be interesting. What interesting to see what kind of road support they bring to that uh, Game up in Ludlow. Ludlow, for those of you who haven't been there is easily the uh, Is easily the one of the most uh, fun event fun places to go watch a soccer game anywhere in New England. Um, I highly recommend it Um, It's always awesome whenever they host an open cup game um, the atmosphere is always good over there, um, so I know I'll have a blast going up there and covering the game. I'll be covering it for the Cup Dot which is obviously the, the, the preeminent, in my opinion, U.S. Open Cup coverage site. Um, so I, I'll have something there for uh, from the game afterward. But um, but yeah, that'll be a, that'll be a great game. Um, the pioneers are are fantastic at home, uh, and Elm City obviously is just coming off winning the NPSL championship. So that'll be a really, really intriguing matchup to watch, uh, to watch uh, in person.
1: And, and best of luck to the uh, Kendall Wanderers of the Bay State Soccer League. GPS Omens had a really good run in the U.S. Open Cup last year. Uh, they lost to Rochester in, I think, the third or fourth round last year third round i'm pretty sure uh anyway kendall is going to be playing the seacoast united phantoms who's who was in first place of the pdl uh new england division last year so that's also going to be a good game uh hoping to see another bssl team with a cinderella run in the u.s open cup i really want to see a bssl team face the revolution uh when they join the u.s open cup so best of luck to them
0: that would be pretty awesome uh, and just to echo Brian's point, if you haven't been out to, to Lusitano Field down in, in Ludlow to watch a game there, it is one of the, the uh, most fun experiences you can have going to a, a lower division soccer game in New England with the, the action right there in front of you. I remember those days when the Revolution played some Open Cup games out there um, and seeing guys like Twalman and Ralston and uh, being able to stand right up against the, the field much closer than you could ever get at a place like Gillette Stadium. It's, a, it's certainly a fun experience if you if you haven't had the chance to go out there. And um, no better time to do it than for an Open Cup match because those are always exciting um, but w- with that, uh, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the show today. Um, make sure you follow Revolution Recap at Revolution Recap on Twitter. Uh, make sure you follow Brian O'Connell at Brian O'Connell 21 and follow Greg Johnstone at G Johnstone 12. And then you can follow me at Sean L Donahue. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Revolution Recap.